This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is the Reformed Media Review, episode number 33. On the program today, we discuss medieval Trinitarian thought from Aquinas to Occam, the new book from Russell L. Friedman. Welcome to the Reformed Media Review. This is episode number 33. My name is Camden Busey, and this is your regular look at books and culture from a Reformed perspective. And I have with me today James Dolzell, who's a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary studying systematics and divine simplicity. Thanks for coming over, James. Oh, good to be here. Well, today we're going to be speaking about a new book from Cambridge University Press. And as you know, these are these nice, beautiful, small books bound very well, uh, but come with a high price tag. (laughs) But it's a fascinating book we have in front of us. James is going to be speaking about it today, and it is from Russell L. Friedman. The title is Medieval Trinitarian Thought from Aquinas to Occam. And Dr. Friedman is professor of philosophy at the Catholic University in Louvain. And so uh, what do we have in front of us here, James, and why is this an important work for our people to know about? Yeah, originally uh, the four chapters of this book were delivered as four um, lectures, and the book really reads that way. It's, it's, four, it's four lectures dealing with the development in Trinitarian theology in the Latin West roughly uh, between 1250 and 1350 A.D. Now, yeah. when you say that, that doesn't... That doesn't seem to, uh, you know, raise any interest, uh, particularly as relates to Trinitarian theology. Most of the most of the interest in Trinitarian theology is in fourth century surrounding Nicaea, yeah, uh, and tends to focus more on the divide between East and West. And so, most of the discussion is located in patristic theology. Medievals uh, talk about Trinitarian thought, and most books on their Trinitarian thought focus more on exposition than on discussion of any kind of controversy. In in this volume, uh, Friedman wants to show that there really were lively debates, even in uh, Latin Western Christianity uh, during this high medieval age, and in particular he wants to set up a contrast between Bonaventure and the Franciscans who followed him, uh, and Thomas Aquinas and the Dominicans who followed him. Um, given the given the original format of the chapters, the book is a relatively quick read, and it's very light on footnotes. Uh, not because hmm. it's not scholarly, but he prefers. Oh, it's from Cambridge. <laughs> I know it's yeah, it's from Cambridge, and you'd think uh, it's it's going to be heavy on the footnotes. And I think in a future volume to be published by Brill, uh, we are going to see a book like that from Friedman on this same topic. Okay. But in this in this volume, he really does maintain the kind of liveliness of the lecture style, so that he's he's telling a narrative of debate as it unfolds over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd think, well, could this really be interesting? And I think, I suppose for some people it, it wouldn't be, but it, it really does get at issues that we care about, particularly... Especially, especially for those with historical minds, more historical theology, right. interested in the progression of ideas. Yeah, uh, that's, and that's what The development of doctrine over time. It, it really shows that, that the notion of a Western consensus... Um, needs to be re, uh, regarding the Trinity needs to be reexamined 
Uh, not to say that there wasn't a lot of consensus, and Friedman does a good job showing the points of agreement, but to say that there were still, and I should say are still, debates today uh-huh. over the best way to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Now let's let's uh, give just a you know two or three minute overview of some of the gigantic features. You mentioned Nicaea and then later Constantinople. What were those two ecumenical councils and what were the main issues there for those listeners who haven't had a background in church history? I would say primarily, if you could distill the issues of the patristic discussion, it so was... the church fathers. The church fathers. Yeah. It was really uh, circling around the questions of the deity of the Son relative to the Arian controversy. Is, is the Son... Is the Son, is Christ, really a divine person? Uh, so those those discussions are largely taken up not so much with the subtleties of how the persons relate to each other, uh, but whether the persons are whether there are indeed three persons and whether those three persons are indeed divine and specifically then the nature of that divinity is it that's the point, is it a received and derived divinity? Is it a created divinity? Does the Father, uh, does the Father uh, make or generate more divine persons? So that you know, could we say something, for instance, that there was a time when the Son was not? You know, the great as Arius said, as that Arius was his formulation. Say, uh, Arius wants to say that the Son is divine, but that the Son wasn't. But the but that the Son is a is a person who becomes divine yeah. when he comes to be. Right. Um, which the idea of coming to be or of prior non-existence is inimical to any uh, orthodox notion of divinity. Mm-hmm. So those were the discussions. Uh, most of them were Christological, numinological, dis- surrounding uh, surrounding controversies that were already going on in the field of Christology uh, that sort of forced themselves onto the doctrine of theology proper. So at the time, they were developing the... the theologians are developing concepts of personality and uh, essence and all of these sorts of things. Essence, substance, nature. They come to even bring up the word perichoresis, and I believe in that intervening time uh, between the two councils. And so uh, Trinitarian doctrine is being developed and solidified. But then we come later to the medieval time period, and, and I do think it's interesting that, yes, we don't always think about Trinitarian thought in the medieval period, but what we have in terms of medieval philosophy is a, is a gigantic interest in the problem of universals right. and the tension between one and many, and which, right. is, which is entirely a, a salient point when we're speaking about the Trinity. Yeah, the, re, the rediscovery of Aristotle by Western Christians, uh, put new questions on the plate, so to speak, uh, to consider, especially then in relation to the Trinity. You mentioned the one and the many question, uh, and the problem of the one and the many becomes a problem that is thrown back on the Trinity itself. The Trinity itself seems to be strikingly one and many, uh, and it is. In fact, I think in our own context of, of Reformed Christianity in the 20th century, one of the great contributions of the late Cornelius Van Til uh, is to argue that the philosophical problem of the one and the many is, in a certain sense, explained by an orthodox Trinitarianism. So even uh, from, from the early 1200s right down to the 20th century, Christians yeah. have been uh, discussing this Ar- Aristotelian uh, well, it's also it's also even pre-Socratic in a way, but this question of the one and the many has been more 
conspicuously forced on the church, and they've had to grapple with it. Um, most of what you find in the different parties that Friedman considers, uh, all of all of these people are pretty much uh, quasi-Aristotelians across the board. They all accept certain features of Aristotelian metaphysics. Now, it's not to say that that corrupted their Christianity. I think some of them sufficiently modified Aristotle, just like some, just like many of the Reformed would later do, uh, to to fit certain assertions about Christian doctrines of creation, of the dependence of creation on a cre- creator as first cause. These things are really are really pushed into a Christian mold and mode of understanding. So, I'm not saying that 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 commitment to a form of Aristotelianism corrupts the Western Church, but it does it does enable the Western Church to ask or formulate questions in ways that might not have been as readily available to the the church fathers at at Nicaea or Constantinople. Mm-hmm. So the the particular debate that Friedman is concerned to draw out, like I said, is that between Thomas and his Dominican heirs and Bonaventure and his Franciscan heirs. And Friedman is not is not necessarily trying to make uh, both parties look entirely coherent in and of themselves. It's understood that some Dominicans will give stress to one or another of the of of a particular emphasis in Trinitarian thought, and the same thing with the Franciscans. In fact, uh, one thing that stands out through the whole book is that in the course of the of the the hundred years that Friedman considers, the Dominicans stand. Uh, fairly consistent. There seems to be little development within the Dominican view. They they pretty much stay with Thomas's explanations, and I'll talk about those in just a moment. Uh, whereas within the Franciscan tradition, uh, there's quite a bit of development um, and eventually disintegration of certain of a certain consensus regarding the use of the psychological model as an explanation of the Trinity. The psychological model uh, essentially says. It is a way of explaining the relations between the persons based upon uh, the notion of God's thought or the Word, the Son as the Word or concept of the Father, and the Spirit as as the love or the will of the Father, uh, which produces the love shared between the Son uh, and this the Father. This was promoted by Augustine, picked up by sure. Edwards, and and in the present day by people like John Piper. Yeah, that's right. This would be. I mean, the psychological model is is uh, is with us to this day, uh, both in historical consideration, but also, yeah, you're right. In even in our modern theologies, we're still saying this. And and on a certain level, uh, it does seem hard to escape when you open uh, the first chapter of John's Gospel, and the Son is called the Word. Uh, not that not that you want to see that as a full blown psychological model, but it's certainly suggestive for the ability to speak this way mm-hmm. about the father's relationship to the son and vice versa. Yeah. Um, the the book, uh, on the whole, basically tries to uh, consider two things. First, it it considers the metaphysics of identity and distinction in the Trinity. Uh, what what is it that accounts for distinction in the Trinity, how, how should we formulate the distinctions between the persons, and particularly how persons relate to each other, uh, and also how persons relate to their one single essence, uh, their one single divine essence. And then secondly, he considers the psychological model, um, 
And in this case, he's looking more at the Franciscans and the development of Franciscan thought in which the Son is the mental word and the Spirit is the, the willful gift of love uh, shared between the Father and Son. Now, in, in his opening chapter, Friedman uh, gives, a, it's a very long chapter, a lengthy discussion of, of the certain Aristotelian categories, how those relate to Trinitarian thought. Um, that'll be of more or less interest to readers, but he, he finds a, um, he does find a, a certain level of agreement between both the Franciscans and the Dominicans, or Bonaventure and Aquinas, if you want to think of it that way, um, in which there's a twofold relation uh, in which each person of the Trinity stands. Uh, and the twofold relation is, uh, first, a relation to the divine essence itself, as related to the essence each person is identical with the essence, uh, meaning the, they, they aren't partially divine. Uh, they, don't, they don't participate in some aspect or another of the divinity, but rather we can say without qualification, the Father is God, the mm-hmm. Son is God, the Spirit is God. Uh, that is is kind of an is of identity. Yeah. We, can, we can insist on a strong identity. But the second relation in which each person stands, relative to the divine nature, they stand in an, in an identity relation. But relative to one another, father to son, we no longer use uh, the language of identity. And in fact, we insist on a real distinction. The father is not the son. Uh, the Son is not the Father, uh, and so on with the Spirit. And, and all the relations, then, uh, are, are related as really distinct, whereas, whereas in respect to the divine nature, they are really identical. This is what both sides of the debate characterized as the twofold nature of the persons. Uh, are the, per- the question, and we'll get to this in a moment, but the question is, are the persons, then, as persons, composed... Uh, or constituted by these two relations. And I think on a certain level, you were, we're saying yes. Uh, what is the nature of that composition? And doesn't composition, doesn't saying that they are composed, oh, yes. uh, flout the basic commitment of divine simplicity, which says that there are no real distinctions uh, in God. And I'm not going to I'm not going to propose a kind of neat and tidy solution. Friedman doesn't either in his book. Mm. Um, and neither side of this debate actually proposed. Uh, a, a neat solution to that problem, except for some radical Franciscans later in the 13th century that Friedman considers at the end. Uh, other than those, most in the Orthodox tradition are allow allow it to stand that there is this that there is this twofold nature of personal relations. One, the re, the person with respect to their divine nature, and the person with respect to other persons. Um, those that's a ground of common commitment. Between the two, uh, let me see how Friedman Friedman sums it up, um, and, and he says it this way. I'm quoting uh, from page eleven. He says, "To give an example, paternity becomes really distinct from filiation when paternity is compared with filiation. That's the father to the son, but compared to its foundation, the divine essence, paternity vanishes since it is the same as the divine essence. Uh, so that so that when we speak when we speak of the divine essence." Uh, when we speak of the divine essence, we can't, from the divine essence itself, uh, in, in let me put, maybe a way to put it is this: in the divine essence, we don't look into the essence and see Father, see, Son, we don't and see Spirit. Little parts around. In, we don't yeah. see parts in the essence, and right. we don't see real distinctions in the essence. So, 
so the essence subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that mode of existence, but the essence is not comprised of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that we wouldn't want to say the essence is the Father, uh, or the essence is the Son, but we would want to say the Son is the the Son is. We would want to say God is the Father or God is the Son in a in a kind of unqualified way, the same way that we would the other direction. We could unqualifiedly say uh, the Father is God, but we couldn't unqualifiedly say. God is the Father without some explanation of subsistent personal but, distinctions. But at the same time, we we must uh, be careful to note that there isn't an abstract essence out there in which they participate. Sometimes sure. when we only have the one direction in our language that way, that seems to be um, at least an option behind our thought, which is it, it's not an orthodox option to say that right. there, is a, there is a bare essence yeah, no, the, of which the three persons participate fully. Yeah, the essence is not something that is there in itself. Yeah, that's uh, right. Apart from per, apart from the consideration of its subsistence in three persons. Yeah. Um, so the way Friedman sums up the agreement is that identity with uh, he basically sums up the personal relations as this: identity with essence when compared to it, distinction from the correlative opposite person when compared to it. Uh, and this is how we can say the Father is God. And the Father is not the Son, and we can say the Son is God, and the Son is not the Father. Uh, he's just explaining the level at which these distinctions are made, and it, it's subtle, but it's a helpful point. And I think yeah. I think it's it's a broadly orthodox point that's made. So I was I was grateful for that uh, explanation uh, in the first chapter. But see, we can learn things from reading old books. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. We can, and they tended to be much more subtle thinkers than we are today, but sure. I, th- I thought in this case it was helpful, and especially seeing that both sides of this debate agree. Now, the, the, the question or the controversy arises when you consider what is the basis of the personal property by which each of the three persons are distinguished from the others. And this is where there's a real clash and a conflict uh, between Dominicans and Franciscans. Uh, were the relational differences between Father, Son, and Spirit due merely to the relations as relations— that would be the view of Aquinas and the Dominicans. Or should the relations be understood as derivatives of the emanations of the persons, which is the view of Bonaventure and the Franciscans? Um, Aquinas insisted on thinking of the relations in this order, uh, relation, then person, then emanation. Maybe put it this way. Um, the, the father is first... F- uh, the father is first uh, defined in his personal property as uh, in his property as father, as one who is in relation to the son. Paternity is that distinguishing personal quality. Unbegottenness. Isn't uh, un- unbegot. Well, no, because <laughs> no, because unbegot. No, you're no, you're going the Franciscan route. I can see it. <laughs> uh, unbegottenness is not, not a pater- radical Franciscan. Un- James. Unbegottenness is not. Unbegottenness is not paternity. No, um, it is not. It's and not. there is and there is also a sense in which, with respect to the divine nature, that unbegottenness applies to all three persons. Mm. Um, there's there's an uh, there's an there's unbegottenness is traditionally used at two different levels with regard to the father uh, as non-emanated, yeah, um, non-proceeding in any sense. That was my um, that my was use. your use of it. Um, certainly, that is that is a quality, but based on based on what do we say he's non-emanated? Meaning, right. meaning in terms of what makes him a per, what makes him a distinct person within the Trinity. Um, 
that he doesn't proceed and he's not he's not spirated and he's and he's not begotten as the son is begotten. Right. And Aquinas wants to say that 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 the reason he's not is because he's the father. Right. Uh, because he stands in relation as father, we can say he's non generated. Uh, Bonne- but, al- but also, yeah. Bonaventure yeah. thinks that that's backward. Uh, and I think in a certain logical sense, there's a sort of intuitive correctness or attraction, at least, to Bonaventure's view, which is to say, h- how could someone be be the father um, in, any, in, any, in any primary sense before we, before we talk about uh, their being non-generated, or maybe put differently with regard to the son? How could we say that, that someone is the son... Uh, prior to consideration of that person as generated, uh, generation seems to be the thing that produces sons. Uh, being, put it this way, being born is what brings sons about in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so within the, within the Godhead, Bonaventure wants to place emanation in, in the very first order. So maybe we can put it in form of a question, because this I'm sure that this like the, last, the last three minutes uh, probably are lost on some people. So we'll clarify. Well, we're trying to understand what makes the persons different from each other, if especially since they all partake fully in the divine essence. They are the you know, and and they are fully gone. The debate isn't even the debate is they all agree on they all agree at one level on the way of articulating the distinctions, but to articulate the origin of the distinctions, yeah, um, or the the most primary element of the distinctions is where the debate is, and we can put it in the form of this question. Is the father the father because he generates the son, or does he generate the son because he is the father? Yeah. Um, Bonaventure would say that he is the father because he generates the son, and Aquinas says no, he generates the son because he is the father. And that's the divide between the two, the two that is, yeah. sides, the two uh, monasteries, yeah. or the two groups of monks. Yeah, that's the right. The Dominicans and, the and Franciscans debate that on that issue. There's, These there's, are representative figures of those two groups. There's more to it, but, but Friedman does a great job showing the implications of Bonaventure's view and implications that he himself accepted. And, and namely, it's that Bonaventure assumes that there is a sort of logical proto-father, uh, and those are the words he uses, proto-father, who becomes fully the father after the son is generated. Now, when I say before and after, Bonaventure isn't saying that there's a kind of temporal succession. Yeah. Uh, that there was Bonaventure is not saying that there was a time when the son was not. Sounds like Ordo Salutis discussion again, James. Every it, time you come on, we get to talking about union with Christ and the Ordo. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> You're bringing up logical, logical priorities with no temporal priority. Well, yeah, and that's... Uh, you know that that always makes people think that you've really thought through the issue. Uh, maybe it's just a way of opting out of thinking through the issue. But anyway, uh, he argues for a proto father who becomes the father uh, through generation, uh, and he become so that his so that his personhood, the personhood of the first person of the Trinity, is logically not fatherhood. It's not even paternity because how could you be father? How could you be father prior to generation? So he'd go with the unbegotten. No. Uh, he, uh, he, would, he would much prefer unbegotten. So Bonaventure claims that the father, uh, because of, of unbegottenness, his, his, the quality that makes him a person is not fatherhood first, it's unbegottenness first, and then fatherhood. Um, so this is, this is a... Um, 
one of the responses. Aquinas Aquinas has a problem with this uh, because it seems to suggest personal development, at least within the first person. The first person, if not temporally, at least logically, undergoes real change as to what makes him the person. Ontological change. Yeah, or at least at least personal change in some metaphysical real sense. Yeah. Um, so one response to that complaint though, um, is that Aquinas, this is a quote, um, uh, about a Franciscan heir. It appears to Petchum, that's the heir of, uh, of, uh, Bonaventure, that Aquinas has argued that paternity as constitutive property precedes generation and that generation in turn precedes the very same paternity and this time considered as a relation. So in his mind, saying that the father precedes a consideration of generation uh, is to get things logically backward. Um, what, what the Franciscans do to explain uh, that, that personal quality of the father is to say that the father possesses what, what we call um, inassibility or primity. Primity is defined as the proto-father's, quote, readiness to emanate. So that there is a kind of fatherly orientation already in the protofather, even though he's not, even though he's not yet father in real relation, because generation has to precede relation. Uh, he's at least fatherly in orientation because he is he is uh, exuding primity, which is readiness to imi- uh, emanate. Uh, so he's in. He stands in a potency toward the activity of generation. Now, if you know anything about Thomas, you know that one of his one of the hallmarks of his doctrine of God is to deny the act potency scheme within the Godhead. God is God does not move from uh, God does not move from potentially being something mm-hmm. in himself to then being something in himself. The idea of intrinsic process from one state to another in which there's a real becoming, something is really put off, in this case, the proto-father's status as inassible or in primity to the son. The, the primity status is put off in exchange for the genuine fatherly status when the son comes about. Uh, the the, the uh, ontology at, of, of the Godhead, as Aquinas mm. sees it, is, is totally against that. He can't allow for any kind of intrinsic uh, becoming. And I think this is where he's more comfortable with the notion of eternal generation. Not that there isn't not that there is an emanation or procession, but that there's emanation and procession without movement between states uh, within the persons of the Godhead. Yeah, that's what we get from something we read like Louis Burkhoff, sure. who says the Father is, or the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So you have the, the begottenness, but you also have no room left for any ontological or metaphysical real change within the Trinity. Or even, or even so there's no a development of who God is in Himself, or even a conception of of logical development, so that there's some kind of logical, even if non. I don't understand right. what that is exactly, but logical but non temporal change. Uh, the the fa, there, let's put it this way: in regard to the first person, uh, the the Father does not become the Father when he transitions from the state of right. readiness to right. emanate to emanate see what what bonaventure is saying logical, is that there that there's a logical sense. sense in which capacity to emanate defines the first person not actually emanating which in a certain sense uh <laughs> so we might modify arian's thing to say not to say that there was a time when the sun was not but 
there was a logical state in which the sun was not. Yeah, and that and that's the problem that Aquinas sees with Bonaventure, and that's and that's what he we, yeah, we would probably we would agree with Thomas. That's that's not a logical possibility. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, though on the face of it, if we're just thinking in a kind of naturalist logical way, we mm-hmm. would say that we would say that there's a certain sense in which ability to be a father precedes the state of fatherhood. No one has ever been a father who was not first a non-father. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Uh, yeah, but we in, might in our, also in our say human that our, experience. Yeah, that, that that's an anthropomorphism. We might also say our understanding of father is somewhat based on the the divine <laughs> uh, reality that we have a, a heavenly father. It, it yeah, it is based on that, and yet we're wanting in a kind of negative theology, yeah, to, in an apophatic way, to deny uh, certain certain normative features of human fatherhood to God, and, right. and particularly we can't describe, right, exactly, uh, exactly. The, this notion of primity, yeah, or this notion of of uh, able to generate uh, ability to yeah, look generate. At, look at for me, yeah, you are an actual father. I'm I I suspect. Um, I guess I don't we'll know for you, sure, but we'll I take, suspect biologically speaking, I am a potential. I'm a proto father. If you're going to have a son, you are now a proto father. Yes. Yes. But you know, actually, Freeman doesn't address that aspect of yeah, uh, yeah. fatherhood in his book. But it is. It no, is no, 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 no. But that's that's a, a mundane day to day example of of what we're speaking. That would be a temporal change, but uh, in a in a logical sense, if you can abstract the time out of that, we can try to understand. It's still what a logical Bonaventure's change, also. It is, but it but it's but it's also temporal. And what Bonaventure is suggesting is not. Bonaventure is suggesting we can have the logical change and not the temporal yeah, change, right, right, and right. and. Uh, and I think Thomas is Thomas more. Says both are Thomas problem. is willing to go with something a little more counterintuitive to preserve the non-developing nature of right. of the Godhead and of the persons. Um, in his second chapter, he he um, turns to he turns to consider the development within the Franciscan uh, tradition of the psychological model, and he and he shows how Henry of Ghent uh, argues for a strong psychological model of explaining. The Trinity. Now, Friedman says that there are two there are two uh, features of a strong what he calls a strong psychological model. First, a strong psychological model stresses a tight link between the divine attributes and the divine emanations. Uh, so, understanding the Son as intellectual emanation and the Spirit as volitional emanation, there's there's a sense in which the the however we understand the attributes of God's knowledge and will be be play a determinative role for Henry of Ghent in how we understand the relationship uh, between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and then the second aspect of a strong psychological model uh, of explanation is an attempt to make the Trinitarian explanations uh, of the personal relations comport with concept theory or will theory. And what's interesting is they get into these kind of, they get into these kind of medieval psychological analysis um, and they they are strongly committed to certain certain features of psychological theory or will theory, or, or moderns would call this um, theory of mind. Mm. And you have to have a robust confidence in theory of mind um, and in the certainty of some of its conclusions to actually use the model. Well, H- Henry of Ghent uh, has a pretty high level of confidence uh, in the medieval theory of mind, and so he's happy using it to explain the Trinitarian relations. Now, Thomas and the Dominicans reject the strong psychological model because to their minds, and I, I think probably rightly so, if I can get a little opinionated 
uh, to their minds, it, it flouts the basic commitment of divine simplicity. We can't root personal relations in at, into attribute relations, or we can't let attribute relations become determinative of personal relations. And the reason is because those who traditionally hold a simplicity, including the Franciscans who still maintain simplicity, uh, the distinctions between attributes are not real distinctions, they are conceptual distinctions. Uh, meaning the distinctions aren't the distinctions aren't real. Uh, the distinctions are real to us, but they aren't in God as really distinct. Um, and that goes for will and knowledge as well. Um, whereas all parties were were committed to the fact that the persons were really dis- were really and genuinely not genuine. That's not the right word to use. Really distinct ontologically, whereas the proper the divine attributes were really identical. Uh, ontologically. So for this reason, Thomas, uh, Thomas resists this strong psychological model because he feels like it's rooted too much in a conception of the divine attributes. And you're going to go, you're going to go wrong in two directions. If you're going to hold simplicity, then you're going to end up saying that if the persons relate like the attributes relate, then you're going to get rid of the real distinction between the persons. And you're going to say the persons are all really identical and only conceptually distinct. Mm. That's heterodox. That's, 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 uh, that's modalism uh, in a, in a, that, or it's modalistic uh, mm-hmm. in its tendency. You could go the other way and you could you could instead of ruining Simply. the doctrine of the Trinity, you could ruin the doctrine of simplicity and you could say reasoning back from the persons to the attributes that the attributes are really distinct, that God's knowledge is really something different in him than his will. And I'm not going to go into and, and Friedman doesn't. He doesn't go into a long discussion of why the doctrine of simplicity was considered necessary and orthodox. And I think some modern readers are going to find it confusing that there was such a hang-up over this doctrine. Um, and I, I would say that that was, one, that was one shortcoming in the book, and one that I'm not intending to correct here since we're doing a, bu- a book review and not, <laughs> and not writing a book in response to. Uh, but it, w- it would have been helpful to understand why identity between attributes was considered to be the most orthodox and sound account of the relation between the divine properties. It sounds counterintuitive uh, to the way we tend to think about properties, but uh, since both parties were committed to the doctrine, it was easy enough for the Dominicans to use it uh, as as ammo against the Franciscans. Um, Second chapter ends with a discussion basically completely focused on Franciscans and Friedman considers the development in Franciscan thought from Henry's uh, two-level psychological model to Dun Scotus's multi-level notion of the psychological model. If that is not enough to convince you that you don't want a long discussion right now of that, I don't know what will. Um, I'll say this. As subtle as those issues are, uh, I think Friedman does as good a job of anyone that I've read on explaining the difference between someone like Dun Scotus and Henry of Ghent. Uh, those, if if you think we're into subtle nuances with the discussion between Dominicans and Franciscans, uh, the inter-Franciscan debates uh, tend to be even more subtle. <laughs> okay, let me let me hit the pause button for a second here. Where's Ig- Ignatius on all this, or yeah. where 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 would the the Jesuit tr- tradition go with this? So they're so large and diverse, though. I would imagine there's probably no single. You know about the modern Jesuit tradition. No, uh, just or in general, Ignatius is is much later. I know, uh, but but where would he have picked up on this um, with respect to the medieval? I don't know. I don't know where Ignatius was. My my impression of the Jesuits uh, is that there was probably a mixture 
on on this question. Uh, in, and and there's going to be a mixture, even in the Reformed explanation of these things, because there are many things that Bonaventure and the Franciscans are saying that even the Dominicans agree with. So there's it's it's always it's hard to tell. It's hard to say there's the Dominican. Trinitarian tradition and the Franciscan. It's reductionistic because, because yeah. a lot because a lot of the content of their Trinitarianism actually overlaps. It's just on these subtle on these more subtle issues where we see these debates. Um, and even as we consider the debates, we have to remember that the Dominicans, though critical of that kind of what I want to say a reified, hardened model of the psycho uh, model of the psychological explanation, uh, they themselves weren't opposed to a psychological model. Uh, because they were Augustinians, and Augustine is really a champion of the psychological model, uh, they were comfortable using it. They were comfortable using the notion of, of, um, of word and of love uh, to, to describe the relationship of the Son and the Spirit to the Father mm. uh, and to each other. Uh, but the question, the question is, how strong is your psychological model? The Dominicans had a weak psychological model of explanation in which they used it somewhat analogously, not, not actually intending you to think, that, uh, to think that literally the way that properties like knowledge and will relate in God uh, is, is sort of um, isomorphically identical to the way that uh, persons relate in, in the triune being of God. Um, they're not saying that there's a kind of univocal one-to-one, as you know, as as knowledge to knower is son to father, as as love to lover is spirit to father and son. Mm-hmm. Uh, though they would say that in a kind of analogical sense uh, to explain, I, I think they're staying away from the hardened uh, sense, at least as it was given by uh, Henry. In the last two chapters, Friedman charts the. What he kind of sees as the decline or the backing away from that strong psychological model used by the Franciscans, and he specifically ties it into a resurgence of commitment to divine simplicity among the Franciscans. Again, my mild critique is that Friedman still, all the way through the end of the book, fails to give us even even a good definition of what the doctrine of simplicity is. So I would say there's a great article on Wikipedia— Look it up, see what it says on divine simplicity, and then you know you're going to be well equipped to at least understand some of the issues involved. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a detriment in his third and fourth chapters. He 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 shows how there's a movement away from the psychological model, or at least a significant weakening of it. He he considers first um, three three Franciscans: Ariel, Marcia, and Occam, uh, and he shows how they how they pull away from how they pull away from the model. And Occam, he basically, he basically concludes that Occam's model is what he calls psychological model light. Uh, <laughs> and psychological model light is, uh, and, he, and he calculates that to just the extent that Occam wants to sort of reappropriate the doctrine of simplicity. The, the last chapter, though, uh, really sees the end of the psychological model altogether with certain fringes of the Franciscan movement. When I say fringes, I don't mean unimportant people, but just probably not the majority. Uh, he considers Walter Chatton, Robert Halcott, and Gregory of Rimini. Uh, what he finds is, or m- m- maybe better said, what he doesn't find is intriguing. They're, these are Franciscans who, within a very short time after the departure of Henry and of Duns Scotus, 
uh, are not even making appeal to the psychological model at all. It's, it's, completely, it's completely absent in their writings. Friedman says this in itself is a manifestation of what he calls the search for simplicity. Mm. Uh, and his basic thesis is that the stronger, the more strongly you are committed to the doctrine of simplicity, the less likely you are to, ex- to use a psychological model of explanation uh, to, to explain the relations between the persons. Um, may that may be so with certain with a with a Franciscan version or an Occamist version of simplicity. I have a hard time seeing exactly how that relates to say um, Thomas's version of simplicity in the psychological model or even Augustine's, because Augustine and Thomas, remember, are both committed to fairly strong doctrines of divine simplicity, and both are committed to a fairly robust use of the psychological model of explanation. I think the question, and this is what Friedman doesn't go into, I think the question, at least as to who was right in this whole debate, centers more around the use of the psychological model and particularly what would be an what would be a sufficiently weak model that was useful enough to explain the relations between the persons, but weak enough not to undermine divine simplicity. Um, I I have to say that I secretly wish, or now I guess openly wish, that he had, that he had explored at least some aspects of that. Is there, an, for instance, is there an analogical way of using the psychological model where it's not, it's not, it's not just a word picture? It is useful for understanding how son and spirit relate to father and to each other. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't go into that. He just basically charts the decline of the Franciscans. Um, and he shows this this was actually a very interesting section. He shows the the commitment of these three Franciscans to uh an Italian who died in around twelve ten, so even even uh before Thomas's time, a an Italian named Prepositinus. Uh Prepositinus. <laughs> I'd love to hear Bob LaRocca say that one. <laughs> yeah, well Bob Bob has his own way of uh Bob has his own way of saying things. Um but the argument of Prepositinus is essentially the, the 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 radical aspect of using his argument is that he doesn't agree with that common notion that we mentioned between the Dominicans and Franciscans of of a twofold relation of the of person to person as the ground of distinction and person to nature as identical. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't agree with that. He thinks that saying that saying that the person stands in in two logically distinct relations, one relation being to other persons and the other relation being to the nature, and saying that they are comprised of those two relations, he thinks that in itself undermines the doctrine of simplicity. Um, and so he simply he simply without explanation, without any use of a psychological model, just posits the distinction between the persons. Uh, uses no explanation for it, and the reason that Friedman gives is because he's committed to this sort of radically strong notion of divine simplicity. Now, I should say right off um, that that the notion that the problem of the persons as persons being composed is generally not within the scope of the consideration of divine simplicity. It's divine simplicity is is almost universally applied to the question of God's existence and his essence, not to the question of the relation between the persons or of the person's relation to persons or to the essence. So 
I, th- I think, and I wish Friedman had been more explicit about this, what Prepositinus is doing, and the Franc- later Franciscans who followed him, is trying, to, is trying to use the doctrine of simplicity to deny the twofold distinction in which we say, consi- in relation to the divine essence, uh, the Father is identical with the essence, and in relation to the divine persons, the Father is not the Son, or the Father is the Father of the Son, or the Father is not the Spirit, um, or is or is a kind of uh, source of the spirit. Mm. He wants he wants to he wants to obliterate that kind of two layered explanation of the persons uh, and collapse them down into into three distinct persons. So he's he's orthodox in his confession, but as Friedman argues, his strange notion of simplicity as relation as being applied to person nature relations and person person relations. Uh, tends to obliterate any hope at explaining the relations between the persons. Mm. And, I th- and I think that that's probably right. And where it left me, at least with my own research, in- in- research interests in uh, divine simplicity, is really trying to be careful about how we apply the doctrine, that the, do- the, do- the doctrine of simplicity is not a sledgehammer that we come and can sort of use on any aspect of God or the, subs- or the subsistent uh, nature of God in three persons, um, it needs to be carefully, and always has been, I would argue, carefully applied to certain features of the Godhead, but has never been applied to the relation of persons to persons, uh, and has never been applied, uh, except for a few extreme cases that are, char- that are uh, noted in this book, it has not been applied to the relation between the essence and the persons. Mm. Um, essence to existence, simple. Essence to essence, that is to say attribute to attribute, simple. Uh, but person to person, not simple. Uh, that there's not that there's not a sim- there's not a simplicity of personal subsistence in God. Mm. And to say that there is is to misuse the doctrine of simplicity. And I, I again, I think. But you he- get some of the benefit of the simplicity, and kind of a coarse way to put it, but from a robust doctrine of perichoresis. Yeah, I think right. you. I think using that, you get some of the the stuff that you want in applying simplicity yeah. to those elements that that but you don't but you get it without the problems well yeah let me, and the reason you get it without the problems is because and i'll be emphatic on this because perichoresis is not a variation or an aspect of simplicity right and it's a but, and it's i a think that's thing. an important point i think your point is good if if prepositinus had used a strong doctrine of interpenetration or that's, perichoresis yes. then he wouldn't have felt like he needed to use his doctrine of simplicity uh, to get the unity he wanted in the Godhead. Yeah, and that this is all uh, germane to what Van Til is speaking about here in the mid to late 20th century. So anyway. for those who would like to do further reading, uh, it's still a very important topic. Um, yes. And it's not just something isolated to the medieval time period, but it's, as James would be quick to tell you, uh, still within the, the modern literature, and it's still an important thing to be speaking about and uh, refining as we move forward. It would. Well, I, re- I recommend this book to anyone interested in how even the Western tradition has debated the question of the one and the many, of of multiple persons, and of a single divine essence and active existence. I think this, e- even if you come to the end of it somewhat confused, it will at least give you... Uh, a better picture of the lay of the land and what options are there. I would say within an orthodox, within an orthodox commitment, uh, no, nobody in this book except maybe the radical Franciscans uh, 
comes out as heterodox or unorthodox. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, this would be a great book to read to, you know, sort of take the pick of the position you want. Uh, not, not so much that way, but to read it, to understand, uh, how the doctrine of the, tr- of the Trinity has been discussed. Um, and, and it also does explode the myth of a kind of absolute monolithic doctrine of the Trinity where there's, there's a, there's a level at which we commit ourselves to an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, but there's a level at which we can still, uh, discuss and try to refine each other uh, on our on our understanding about particulars. Mm. Well, thank so. you so much for that, James. Thanks for taking the time to come over and all the time you've put into reading this and digesting it. Um, can we uh, can we say anything about a review? Sure, sure. Um, that James is publishing a review with this that'll be out. Uh, do you have a time frame on I that? I don't. I okay. don't. And who is it with? Uh, that's with the uh, Scottish Journal of Theology. So you keep your eyes open in future editions of the Scottish Journal of Theology, and you'll see uh, James Dolzell's name in lights there. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it's in I don't think it's in lights though. <laughs> well, anyway, before we get moving, I'd like to remind you that the entire Reform Forum Network is listener supported, and we love what we do here, um, and we do it out of. Uh, our own interest in discussing with each other, but we also try to provide a window into a conversation. That's what we're trying to do. So we look at it as if James and I were sitting down speaking about this, but with the consciousness or the understanding that other people are listening in. And that's always been our goal uh, with Reform Forum, and it's our goal as we continue to move on, even into video here, hopefully in the near future. And if you'd like to support us, please, uh, you can send your donations to P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Or you can visit our website at reformedforum.org. There at the top, there is a, a large donate button, and you can donate to us electronically as well. Uh, we don't really think anyone else is doing this sort of thing. There are a lot of reform resources online, but we try to provide a large uh, swath of resources going uh, from introductory level things all the way up to this, which is a, a heavier discussion, uh, discussing some philosophy and some some deep, deep thought. And so if you uh, have been enjoying what we've been producing, we would please encourage you uh, to provide your financial support along with your uh, prayerful support in, in helping us to continue our mission, helping us to continue putting out resources as often, as frequently as we do. So thank you so much. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org. You can also Twitter us at reformedforum. But until next time, we ask you to tola lege and just pick up and read.